0: Alright, Edie Ecmo, this is Zach Shiner. And listen, this is a interview I just did with Jim Manning. He was just in Paris and he right after the attacks occurred. He was out there following around in the SAMU, the ambulance system that goes and aids in recovery of resuscitation patients, but also helps with doing pre-hospital ECMO. This is an interview that I did with Jim, with we're just hanging out, while he is inside of the headquarters for Paris for ambulance
1: transfers. All right. See, see for the most part. So... What you're looking at behind me is the, uh, is the semi de Paris uh, Communications Center. And in here they have several people that are answering calls, um, just trying to triage and determine, you know, whether they need ambulances, whether they need a physician response vehicle, like one of the SEMU vehicles, um, or just need advice. Tell them to go to their doctor, or maybe even to have a doctor go by and see them at their house. And they handle, I don't know how many calls a day, but, Let's see. It's um, it's maybe about uh, five in the afternoon, five six in the afternoon here, and they have so. And this has been since midnight. They've already handled 2,050 calls. So probably an average day for them is somewhere in the range of you know close to 3,000 calls a day. And uh, they have physicians here that are actually, I think from what the i they're physicians that are sitting here. There are two, two, two probably at least two physicians at a time that are on answering calls and giving patients advice. Trying to sort out, um, you know, do they need a, a, a physician to come to, this, to, uh, to the house to see them or not? So um, there, it's, a, it's a pretty slick operation. Up on the up on the, the ceiling, you can see, or up at high, you can see there are two television screens. And one of those is, uh, is is a board that tracks all the telephone calls, how many are waiting, and how many they're answering you know, quickly, or how fast within like twenty seconds or forty seconds. Sort of a QA uh, um, effort that's ongoing as they as they're working. They also have televisions that uh, have two television screens that have two different news agencies where they're following all the latest events by by, by television. And most of the, the entire time I've been here, for the most part, it's all been about the uh, you know post response to the to the terrorist attacks on on Friday the 13th. Um, but yet today, I guess there's an event that's down in uh, Mali, and, and so they've been following that a fair amount. So uh, that's kind of the, the the situation here. And from here. Um, sometimes the, uh, the the ECMO doctor who is on call will be sitting at one of the desks maybe answering phone calls or doing other things but as soon as an ECMO call comes in we take off and go downstairs to the ECMO unit and uh, take off to the scene
0: Wow well, Okay, so take us through what. tell us about some of these calls
1: well, Let's see, I've been here since Monday, this is Friday, so this is my fifth day. We've had a total of seven ECMO dispatches The first three um, were actually they were all all, all cancelled, or the, uh, the the patient's downtime was too long without CPR. Um, so so it was it was not until Wednesday evening, about nine o'clock, when we were sitting in a restaurant, literally about to order dinner, when we got a call for a um, a cardiac arrest in one of the train stations, and it was a witnessed arrest and had an AED applied, shot uh, several times, I like think seven times by the uh, by the policemen that were actually staffing the uh, or firemen actually that were staffing the, the, the train station. Uh, the same unit got on, on scene the fibrillated patient four more times and then we arrived and given that the uh, the, the no flow time was very limited because it was a witness arrest had good CPR and then Title C O two was above ten millimeters of mercury, uh, the decision was made to go ahead and put them on the ECMA. So this patient was uh, really lying on a corridor and, uh, and they got cannulated, and, and I started on ECMO. The total procedure time was about 18 minutes. But wow. so I got him on ECMO, and then uh, slowly, at that point, when they had more perfusion, they were able to uh, take their time, get, them, get him ready for transport. I had to take him out, up an escalator, into the back of a, an ambulance, and then take him to uh, one of the hospitals for a cardiac catheterization. And just as they got him into the uh, ambulance, he had returned spontaneous circulation. And so it made it to cardiac catheterization. Uh, that you know, showed clean coronaries, no, no stentable lesion, no occlusion. And then he was transferred over to Necker Hospital, which is the ICU that Leonel has. All of, the post, all of the post-resuscitation, post-ROS patients on ECMO come to this ICU so they get pretty standardized care under uh, you know, Leonel's uh, uh, oversight. And that's where that particular patient is now, still in the ICU at this point. So and this is today, statewide. This this was on day three. Like I guess we, we had we had one ECMO dispatch on Monday, two on Tuesday, and then we had the one on uh, Wednesday that that where we did initiate ECMO. And then we've had actually there was none there were none yesterday, For thirty six hours there was nothing. And we've already had three today so far. Wow. Now the interesting thing is that today two of them were good candidates for ECMO, but both of them actually had uh, return spontaneous circulation. Before we actually, before we actually got to the point, we, the first one we were just about we were actually pulling everything out to, to, to begin to uh, cannulate, but uh, but um, actually got him back. So two of the three, and actually that one apparently went to the calf lab and woke up on the calf on a table. So that's a nice story. Okay, so, uh, so we're just hanging and waiting, you know, for potentially the next one. That's still got tonight and uh, tomorrow before I have to take off.
0: So, just explain to us, what's it like? Tell us what the experience is like going out into the field.
1: Well, it's fascinating. I mean, it's just, it's, it's great. I mean, because, uh, I mean, the, the, the team is well coordinated. I mean, they get the call, the, the, the team assembles, they get into the truck, they make sure they know where they're going, and, uh, take off to the scene. And, of course, you can imagine going blue lights and siren through the streets of Paris is, uh, you know, not your typical, you know, EMS experience, at least if you're an American. So, it's, um, and that's been uh, so it's uh, exciting in that regard. But, uh, you know, getting on scene and assessing the scene and, and uh, determining whether you can actually initiate that or not is, uh, is pretty methodical. We've got clear protocols for how they're doing this. They look for specific things, and no flow time has to be no more than five minutes. And then after that, their low flow needs to be consistent CPR and, and need to have an entitled CO2 of 10 or greater in order to be a candidate for initiation of ECMO, they also, from the time, I think it's from the time to get defibrillation, I got to make sure I get this right, from the time they have defibrillation the and start CPR, from the very beginning of what they consider the low flow phase, 20 minutes of uh, resuscitative efforts is their protocol before they initiate um, ECMO. So, if the, so even if they get on scene within, say, like 10 minutes of the initiation of CPR, they, by protocol, wait until the 20-minute mark to initiate uh, or at least begin the process of uh, you know, cannulation and, and, uh, and, and initiating echo.
0: So they can't even put effect. in an art line or a venous cordis line? But,
1: or... Not at this point because they're, uh, they're talking about that. What they do at present is because their cannulation is a, is a direct visualization through a cutdown. down they don't start the cut-down until they hit the time mark. So and I know this is something we were actually just discussing this at once today. How uh, how I think they would like to be able to initiate um, ECMO or at least begin the process of cannulation sooner, and we were talking about strategies for doing that. So that if you do hit that mark, if you are going to have a protocol where you say, look, oh, we're gonna we're gonna wait for at least and give at least 20 minutes of ACLS and CPR to to to, have, to see if you can get lost, um, to at least maybe begin to try to have a strategy where. You get um, femoral arterial and/or venous access to, uh, to, so that you can more quickly move through and cannulate for um, you know, for for
0: so, t- so, tell me, what's it? What is your ex- what is your thoughts on the cut down approach? Do you think that's a better technique? Should we be moving to that? Do you think it, I do think it makes sense?
1: It makes sense for consistency reasons. Of course, the problem is that you may actually mm-hmm. very well by doing percutaneous, you may be able to very quickly percutaneous like, the hippie artery and vein know that that can certainly be done. I mean, I, I, mean did you not, I did this in the field 20 years ago when I was going out for cardiac arrest. So, yes, it can be done. But the problem is that um, it's not absolutely consistent. If you have, for example, the, the patient that we actually initiated the ECMO on, on Wednesday night, the artery and the vein were sitting on top of each other. Yeah. And, uh, and and when you see some of the pictures, I'll get these pictures to you, you'll see that actually when uh, when they had the cannula um, inserted and taped down, the arterial cannula is actually lying medial to the uh, venous and It was are going to go, oh, wait a that was kind of backwards. Well, the fact is, it didn't really matter; they were all sitting on top of each other. It was just how you actually injured the vessels, and uh, and that was actually one of the challenges for um, Wednesday nights. It took a few extra min- few extra minutes just to make sure they could identify the, the artery and vein accurately in terms of position, and uh, so, and so that's the problem. Is if you try to do it percutaneously, if you have a patient like that where the artery and the vein are sitting right on top of each other. You're very likely to wind up having trouble, you know, getting the catheters placed properly, potentially putting both cannulae in the same vessel, which we know can happen. And um, so that's that's where the benefit of doing a cutdown is. You know, it is invasive; it, it, it does not mean an incision. But you know, uh, you know, my viewpoint is that uh, the patient's brain's dying, so uh, a, a four you know, to five centimeter incision at your inguinal crease in a In a a non-cosmetic area, who cares? Just do it. So I think they have a good plan. I think the the, uh, the ability to, to go in, identify the vessels quickly, and make sure that under direct visualization you can get the catheters in place, I think makes sense. And if you do it the way they are, they make the incision, but then they go down below the incision and go in percutaneously. Basically, it's almost like they do percutaneous access under direct vision, mm-hmm. and once they have the uh, once they have the cannulas in place, they see the the, the needles and the guidewires go right into the appropriate vessels. Once they've got the cannula in, they clean everything up and, and, and suture the uh, the incision. And really, then it looks just like you've done percutaneous. It's just you've got a laceration above that's already been sutured. So
0: yeah, I mean, it, it seems like this is an advantage. If we can gain the skill to be able to do that quickly, I think I think that's a way we should start moving.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 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 fairly convinced. I think it's a good idea. I, I could I could I could um I could make maybe the argument, or at least you know see the rationale for saying, okay, you've got maybe for example, what I used to do when I went into the field just for pressure catheters, I gave myself about one minute, no more than two, to hit the artery and get it and get uh get the artery cannula- cannulated with uh which is a simple introducer catheter. If I fail to, to get arterial access within about one minute or two at the most, I would do a cut down. So I think you could, uh, you know, that could be the approach. You could say if we come up with some sort of a device that's actually pretty accurate or percutaneous and you're pretty reliable or ultrasound and you can do it within a minute, sure, go ahead. Maybe that's reasonable. But if there's any question, if there's any delay, you have some sort of time limit so you don't wait and spend, say, five or eight minutes trying to get percutaneous access and fail go ahead and do the cutdown. So either you go straight to the cutdown, or you get a very time-limited attempt at percutaneous and then go to a cut-down if failure.
0: Awesome. Hey, last thing, I want to hear, what's it like transporting someone on ECMO? What's it like getting them off the scene?
1: Well, you know, the thing is, is that once you have them on ECMO, everything chills off. I mean, you
0: don't have to move fast. You've got them on
1: support. Everything's running smoothly. At that point, literally, it's almost as if things kind of slow down, become very careful, very methodical. They're very easy in the way they move the patient, lift the patient, transport them, because you've got them on support. You don't have to go rushing. You don't have to be flying around and moving your hands fast. As a matter of fact, you don't want to in that instance. You've got them on pump. You don't want anything to suddenly catch the cannulas and pull them out. You know, The last thing you want is an ECMO disaster. Yeah. So at that point, once they have them on support, everybody can kind of sit back and say, okay, now let's very carefully slowly, methodically, and safely package the patient, get them up, move them slowly, and get them on the way to the hospital. You have them on perfusion support. You don't have to rush at that point.
0: Now, now, of course, you my experience, though, has been that, that these guys get hypotensive. Are they carrying pressers with them on these rigs? Yes,
1: absolutely. As soon as they... Their protocol here is as soon as they get them on support, first of all, they do not heparinize to begin with. They do not heparinize in the field. Hmm. But They initially, as soon as they get uh, um, perfusion going, uh, they start dobutamine at five micrograms per kilogram per minute. And yesterday, I think they did this when they started norepinephrine at three milligrams per hour. So they have norepinephrine drip, a dobutamine drip, and they also, here by their protocol, they get two units of packed red blood cells and two units of fresh frozen plasma. Mm.
0: Do you know, I mean, what's the thought on dobutamine? Is it you're trying to just kick the heart rather than, and you already know that there's a big afterload going on, so you don't want to increase the afterload? Is that is that the thought on dobutamine?
1: Um, well, I, I, I think the thought is because when you're on ECMOs, you know, that's actually a significant um, uh, competition right. for the myocardium in terms of contractility. Right. And so they're trying to actually get the heart to beat. They don't want the heart to like flaccid. Right. So I think the idea is to, is to start those right away, begin to get some report support, get some inotrope on board, and then once you get return of circulation, I guess then you can begin to play with, you know, do you begin to dial down your, your perfusion or not. One of the things I found interesting, and this is Leonel's um, um, uh, pattern for, or, or, or for doing this, is that once you he, once he get the cannulas in place and starts ECMO support, he starts out at about two-and-a-half to three liters per minute to begin with. So I think they have it set for two-and-a-half liters. They start at two-and-a-half liters. Once everything looks good, you'll move it up to three liters and leave it at three liters for a few minutes. Then he gradually moves it up to three-and-a-half to four liters as tolerated. And his thought is rather than going to maximum uh, uh, flow initially, is that you've had a low-flow state with uh, hypoxia for a long time to suddenly introduce you know, a lot of oxygen very, very quickly may actually exacerbate, um, root injury. Mm-hmm. Hard to know. I think this is something that needs to be studied, um, in a research lab and to get a good, clearer handle on it. But I understand his rationale. Also, once they get started, they actually begin to adjust the, uh, the oxygen levels and stuff to try to maintain, you know, good oxygenation of the hemoglobin, but not, uh, but not, you know, an excessively high PO2.
0: Wow. So much stuff. Man, Jim, this is just fantastic. Are you completely stoked out there? This is one of the
1: coolest things I've ever done.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow. I've had a
1: chance to do a few cool things, so this is really, really cool.
0: I yeah. know. Spoken for <laughs> yeah. the guy who's done pre-hospital intra-aortic balloon, I mean, um, catheters, you're now doing pre-hospital ECMO in Paris. That's unreal. See, I, I argue to these guys that whether you should do is
1: during that, that phase where they're trying to decide whether you should actually go to you know, to ECMO or not, Uh you're going to give ACLS a try, that, you know, I understand the big question is putting, you know, two large cannulas in people and putting them on ECMO um, is expensive, so it's resource-intensive. And so one of the questions is if you are going to give, you know, ACLS a, a period of time to work, say 10 minutes or something like that, well, if you can't get arterial access and if you could use, say, selective area arch perfusion, that might be a time to do that because that's about the length of time you're talking about. If you don't get to, uh, if you don't get success with, say, SAP in about five minutes or so, you have to begin to move toward a partial or full echo picture anyway. So, you know, I still, of course, I have my bias, but it's, uh, but that may be, a, you know, an added thing that can, you know, help resuscitate our patients. We'll see. But this is exciting. This is, this is fantastic. This is the future, if you ask me. We are going to be doing this and it's just a, a matter of time before the rest of us realize that the, you uh, know, the semi-decree are at the tip of the spear and they're headed in the right direction. Mm-hmm.
0: Alright Jim, I gotta get going, but this is just absolutely unbelievable. You are you are gonna bring it back to us.
1: Yeah, that's it's fantastic. So you guys are I I figure I'm gonna get you guys to where you're you're not gonna you stand it. You're gonna have to come here and see it yourself.
0: But you know I already wanted to come. I just uh yeah, next trip I have gotta be out there with you guys. Alright Jim, I've gotta go. Um, so cool and um, I'm sure we'll we'll talk soon. All right, take care, buddy. Bye, Bye. Bye. All right, so wrapping that up, wow. Jim Manning, Paris, France. Do we start doing cutdowns? Man, I'm, I'm becoming a believer, and this may just be the way that we avoid damage to all these vessels, the bleeding that has been from getting multiple sticks or even that terrible consequence when you accidentally put a two lines in the same vessel. So, and then this whole idea of pre-hospital ECMO continues to be something that in the States we are hoping to be able to do. The question is how we do that, how do we roll it out, and, uh, and then we have to really prove that this works. So, from ED ECMO, Zach Shiner, that was Jim Manning telling us how it is. Bye.